We turn our attention now to Eritrea, a tiny, young, isolated country on the Horn of Africa where the population is faced with food shortages, a brutal authoritarian ruler, and has few political rights. And we are joined now from London by Michaela Rong, a journalist and author of numerous books, including I Didn't Do It For You, How the World Betrayed a Small African Nation. I'm pleased that it has brought her back to our show for today's underreported segment. Hello. Hello. The Guardian Simon Tisdall uh, described Eritrea as an impoverished, mostly friendless country located at the wrong end of the Red Sea. Would you agree with that? Uh, well, I don't know what he means by wrong. Uh, it's located on the Red Sea, and being uh, on a, having a coast is a, is a very important um, <laughs> part of one's geostrategic importance. And certainly is the aspect of Eritrea that its big neighbor to the south, Ethiopia, um, is most exercised about, because basically when Eritrea won its independence in 1993, Ethiopia lost its coastline. Um, I suspect um, the Guardian writers are referring to the fact that it's a troubled region, uh, as we're seeing in Somalia at the moment, and that it's also a region which t- uh, suffers terribly from famine and drought. Wasn't Eritrea once an Italian colony? Yes, it was indeed. It was uh, Italy's first colony. Uh, it was Italy's attempt at having an African empire. And they went in there in the late 19th century and, and established a toehold there and, 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 um, and later then returned under Mussolini and used it as, as the, uh, the jumping point uh, for their invasion of Ethiopia um, and, and were then sort of pushed out by the British in the Second World War. I've been told that Asmara, its capital, is one of the world's most beautiful cities. Is that true? Yes, it certainly is. It's, uh, it's regarded as a jewel of modernist architecture. Um, it, was, um, it had a lot of investment put into it by the Italians, uh, and it's a very pleasant place to walk around. It's full of these modernist uh, buildings. Um, uh, I mean, if you're into architecture, you just walk around with your mouth wide open, and, and there's been very little damage because um, although Eritrea has been the, the, the venue of uh, uh, endless uh, sort of conflicts, uh, they didn't touch the capital, um, and so these are these are buildings that are very decayed, but they're in, nonetheless in basically pristine condition. How did it become part of Ethiopia? Um, well, this is, uh, of course, a very political uh, topic. Um, the Ethiopians would say that it, it sort of uh, really was always uh, uh, always part of the Abyssinian Empire, um, and the Eritreans would say that no, it was um, it was a, 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 a part of the, the world that always uh, looked out, uh, that, that traded and dealt a lot uh, a lot more. Uh, that was a very cos- cosmopolitan and, and that had dealings with the, the rest of the world. Um, uh, but basically w- w- what you do have is, um, a, is an attempt to sort out uh, where Eritrea belongs after the Second World War because it is a former Italian colony. The Brits ru- end up running it for 10 years. Uh, then it's federated with Ethiopia, uh, but under Haile Selassie the Emperor, he always was very clear that Eritrea was going to become the northernmost province uh, of Ethiopia. He wanted access to the sea, um, and he eventually swallowed it up. And the UN, which had been meant to uh, uh, guarantee uh, that Eritreans got a say in their future, basically turned a blind eye at that point. And it's one of the reasons why uh, 
people don't ever seem to understand why Eritreans have a problem with the United Nations uh, and rather treat it with contempt and scorn. And that is one of the historical reasons, because they feel that at the time when they uh, should have been given the chance to decide uh, uh, whether or not they were going to be part of Ethiopia, remain part, uh, a, a true part of Ethiopia, or, 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 have, or be independent, um, that uh, the UN just walked away and ignored uh, the, the protestations who, who, of those who didn't want to be part of Ethiopia. Does that account for its isolation? Um, it, it, it's a long uh, and complicated story why Eritrea has become as isolated as it is today. One of the reasons is that uh, uh, they, there, there was, after the, um, the Ethiopians swallowed up Eritrea, um, a, a guerrilla movement started up um, and started to fight for independence against, against the Ethiopians, the Ethiopian army, um, and got no help, basically, from the outside world and developed an extraordinary credo of self-reliance um, and independence and a sort of, it was a shoestring uh, guerrilla operation that in the end had its headquarters in a mountain, um, in a sort of mountain trenches in a place called Nakfa and, and developed this whole philosophy of sort of we can win independence from Ethiopia on our own. Uh, we don't need the help of the Soviet Union or the Americans. Neither of them want to side with us because uh, by that stage in the 1970s, they were a, a, um, a communist movement that was fighting a communist regime in Ethiopia by that stage under Mengistu. Um, and so it was sort of, okay, the world has spurned us. The superpowers don't want to have anything to do with us. We're going to do this on our own. And that really is, it, it has lasted to this day in this rejection. The Eritreans are very, very proud of the fact that they don't want foreign aid. Uh, they don't want Western aid. Uh, and they also regard themselves as, as forging their own path, uh, not needing or listening to outside advice. Um, and uh, this is the way Eritrea uh, um, conducts itself, and they're sort of proud of, of this rugged independence. Well, Thomas Keneally of Schindler's, Schindler's List fame wrote a novel called Towards Asmara, in which he painted the independence struggle as being quite heroic. So how has that degenerated into the situation today? The country finally gained independence in the early 1990s. Uh, was that just something that was worked out uh, as part of a peace deal? Uh, no, it was a very hard, hard-fought victory. And, and what you saw is that the Eritrean uh, movement that Keneally describes in in his book, that was very popular with uh, with left wingers uh, in the West, because um, you know it really was a hearts and mind rebel movement, uh, and it sent barefoot doctors out to work with the villagers, and it believed in educating the peasants, um, and was really very inspiring, very principled, very disciplined, made a great point of teach, uh, treating prisoners of war uh, very well, ran schools underground in the caves, had hospitals uh, underground. Um, I mean, it was an extraordinary, the EPLF was an extraordinary movement. Uh, what you see in 93 is, is not only do they liberate Eritrea, but they, they, with this alliance that they formed with the Ethiopian uh, rebel movement, they also toppled the regime of Mengistu Haile Mariam in, in Addis Ababa. So they they changed history at that stage. They changed the history of the region. But I, I think what you saw after that was um, uh, a, 
a growing isolation and a, and a failure um, uh, of um, a, a rebel movement which had been very militaristic, extremely disciplined, and like all rebel movements, you know, tended not to broker internal dissent. Um, uh, that there was a failure then to adapt to civilian life, which is messy. Um, you have to embrace people um, who didn't necessarily take part in the struggle. Uh, there were complaints of, of, of sort of differences between the, the, the rebels who, who, who had come forward as the elite. Uh, and then you have um, a, a series of clashes with the neighbors of Eritrea um, over land, because the Eritreans are very sensitive on the point of land. You know, they feel they fought for their independence. And when, when Yemen or, 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 or then Ethiopia ended up um, infringing on land that, that they had won during the struggle, um, uh, they were very quick to respond with aggression. Um, also and Sudan. border war uh, breaking out, and that really was the beginning of the authoritarianism that you've seen develop, um, because the critics of, of the regime were rounded up, uh, including um, Isaias Afawaki's closest allies in government. My guest is Michaela Wrong, who uh, has written a number of books, including I Didn't Do It For You, How the World Betrayed a Small African Nation. This is WNYC, WNYC.org. I'm Leonard Lopatin. We're talking about Eritrea on our underreported segment today. Well, we went from that heroic struggle to the situation today. A recently released U.N. monitoring group report accused the Eritrean government of many wrongdoings, including human trafficking, contraband, money laundering, extortion, even being behind a plot to bomb an African Union summit in Addis Ababa. Uh, why haven't we heard more about this in the international press? Um, I think Eritrea um, uh, tends to be ignored, and it partly tends to be ignored because it's become extremely hostile to journalists like myself. It's very difficult for people like us to get visas uh, to go in there. Um, I think that it's also been ignored because there is this attitude of the Eritrean regime that we don't care what the outside world thinks. Um, and, and also, I think there is a, a, a real blindness, actually, uh, in, the, uh, in, in the West towards Ethiopia, um, which is the great rival of the uh, of Isaiah Safawerki is Melis Zanawi, the Ethiopian uh, leader. Um, and there is, uh, the West doesn't really want to hear Eritrea's side of the story. And um, I, in the last um, question you asked me, you sort of, uh, we, we ended up talking about this, this last border war that there was between the Eritreans um, and the Ethiopians. And the, what we've had is a situation where there is um, an undemarcated border between Eritrea and Ethiopia, despite the fact that both sides had gone to international arbitration, and this, this village where the new war broke out was allotted to Eritrea. Uh, Ethiopia didn't, didn't find it acceptable, didn't want to demarcate, has never demarcated. Um, and the West has never really attempted to put any pressure on, er on Ethiopia to demarcate. And as a result, Eritrea feels it's in a state of sort of constant war, and it uses that as an excuse to play all these dirty tricks which are listed uh, and detailed in this UN monitoring uh, report, which I found extremely depressing to read, because it really shows that a proxy war is being staged in the region, much of it in Somalia, by both of these regimes, who are now at loggerheads, having once been two rebel movements that were united and, and uh, fighting on the same side against men, 
against Mengistu, they're now waging a proxy war inside Somalia. And if Eritrea is, is playing dirty games and supporting al-Shabaab, the Islamic movement in Somalia that everyone is very worried and frightened about, Ethiopia is also uh, funding and uh, supporting rebel movements and opposition movements that are, are dedicated to the overthrow of Isaias Hafewerki. So you've got a shabby little war being staged between these two regimes. And I think the West can't find it in its heart to, um, to rein in Ethiopia and has no leverage over Eritrea because Eritrea doesn't get foreign aid. Eritrea is very famously proud of its independence and Eritrea is not a, a, a regime that you can exert pressure on. So the West has one country it could put pressure on that gets $3.3 billion of aid a year, which is Ethiopia, and it doesn't use its leverage. And it has a small and extremely stubborn and difficult country that it can't really put leverage on because it doesn't need anything from the West. Um, and it tries to put pressure on that one. And it's a slightly uh, paradoxical uh, and bizarre situation. Well, well, talking about that pride, uh, a caller in Eritrean, who, by the way, says that he's read your book and found it quite excellent, says he just returned from Eritrea and that there were no food shortages, although we've heard about them. Uh, the roads are some of the best in Africa. And he says that the West wants to patronize the country, has difficulty acknowledging when a country is doing well. Well, um, uh, one of the problems with Eritrea is it's, it's very difficult for people to know what's going on inside the country. Uh, diplomats in the, in the capital, for example, find it very difficult to leave the capital. Uh, they're, they're really cooped up inside Asmara and can't get down to the coast or into the country. And as I said, uh, journalists aren't welcome. But I wouldn't be at all surprised if that is indeed the case. Uh, there have been rumors that um, the famine is hitting Eritrea hard. Eritrea is, is historically um, always a, a country where um, drought is a problem, shortages of water, and food is not exactly abundant. But, you know, this is a, uh, it is a country being run by an extremely disciplined and authoritarian uh, country that has poured its energies into building roads, building hospitals, a lot of it with Chinese help, um, uh, making sure basic commodities get out to, to the rural areas. And it is extremely proud of its record on that front, just well, as the Ethiopian uh, regime is very proud of its record on that front uh, across the, the way. And to be honest, I wouldn't be surprised if that's the case. I, I don't think that anyone's going to find, you know, piles of, of sort of starving Eritreans because this is what they do. This is what they fought for for, you know, those... 30 years in the mountain trenches. But can we and talk a bit about Isaias Afewerke, a, yeah, uh, sure. a 2009 diplomatic cable written by the then U.S. ambassador to the country and obtained by WikiLeaks, called him an unhinged dictator, said that the government is one bullet away from implosion. And uh, we a, a few weeks ago, we had Eliza Griswold here on our show, and she told me grisly tales of Afewerke locking opponents in shipping containers and letting them fry to death. Sounds quite yeah, awful. These, yeah, I think these are the slightly exaggerated, you know, um, uh, stories that um, diplomats tell when they are frustrated because they don't get access to presidents. I've interviewed Isaias Afewerki, uh, I think it's four times. He is certainly not deranged. Um, he is extremely coherent, extremely articulate. He has a very particular way of looking at the history of the region and its politics. 
it doesn't happen to gel with the way you know the West would like him to see the future. I think he's done a huge amount of damage to Eritrea, and I think the Eritreans are paying the price. How did he come to power? Uh, he was the head of the EPLF uh, rebel movement, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, so you know uh, came to power that way. There have never been any elections in Eritrea. It has to be said because they have a constitution that was uh, extremely uh, uh, widely discussed, debated, adopted, and then was never uh, adopted or put into practice. Um, and yes, Saya work has become extremely intolerant of any form of challenge, any form of, of contestation. Um, his closest allies in government were jailed um, in 2000 and uh, uh, at the end of the last war, um, and um, he, they've not been seen since. Um, and really, it is, you know, in that way, the uh, cable of the U.S. diplomat is correct because um, he really does run the show, he and a group of generals around him. And um, if, if Isaiah Safawaki were to be killed, um, uh, then I think we would probably be seeing some sort of military takeover. Uh, well, but, a different um, WikiLeaks cable noted that Afewerki is the only thing keeping the regime together, but notes that he's clever, very good at operational security, and two decades younger than Mugabe. Uh, yes, well, most people are younger than Mugabe, it has to be said. <laughs> but the suggestion <laughs> but, is that he could stay in power for a long time. Yes, but I, I, I think, uh, you know, Isaiah uh, Safawerki is a very wily operator. I think he made a major mistake uh, with his stance in Somalia because uh, by uh, playing this proxy war and supporting al-Shabaab in Somalia, he ensured that the West would treat him as a pariah state. And that's the phrase that you hear used about Eritrea all the time now. And that was not a necessary step, and that was not an isolation that has benefited Eritrea, and it has meant that people just dismiss him as another kind of Gaddafi, a deranged dictator. And I think that that was a massive blunder. Well, is his support of al-Shabaab a matter of the enemy of my enemy is my friend? This is the game that both regimes are playing. Uh, he's playing it in, in Somalia by supporting al-Shabaab, and Ethiopia, Malisanawi, is playing it by hosting, funding, and welcoming uh, the opposition movement that is dedicated to his overthrow in Addis. So both sides are playing this, but Malisanawi did not play, uh, did not make the mistake of supporting an Islamic fundamentalist movement that is now regarded as a threat to the entire region, and that has been setting off bombs in places like Kampala in, in, in nearby Uganda. Well, Sud- uh, Sudan's government in Khartoum has also accused Eritrea of supporting insurgents in its country. So is Eritrea making any money from this? Um, I, I think uh, Eritrea's sources of, of funding remain quite mysterious. Uh, it, it, uh, it depends on, on the diaspora. I wouldn't be surprised if Eritrea, rather than um, making money or spending money on these various rebel movements, and you're right that it is accused of, of supporting rebel movements that are dedicated to overthrowing regimes in Djibouti, in Sudan, in Ethiopia, and Somalia. And you're um, saying the diaspora the, uh, is helping because remittances from family members yeah, living abroad. And then there's a little there's a little bit of gold there also, isn't there? They 
have discovered gold in recent years, and a lot of the gold mining companies um, are very excited. Uh, it's not just gold. They've got copper. Uh, I think they've got zinc. There are very interesting deposits in Eritrean. Um, a lot of Western uh, companies now are very uh, are sniffing around, um, and there, there is a Canadian company, Nevson, which is heavily invested in uh, Eritrea already, and that money is, is probably going to be coming online. Uh, but it, it has to be said that with all this talk now, as a result of the UN Monitoring Group's report, there's now talk of, of uh, extending existing sanctions against the Eritrean uh, government, and that might impact on these kind of um, um, mining, um, mining plans. Michaela Rong is the author of I Didn't Do It For You, how the world betrayed a small African nation, among her other works. Uh, thank you so much for talking with us today on our underreported segment. It's been a pleasure.